I don't know your thoughts as we read together from Romans chapter 3. My first thoughts weren't positive as I tried to even understand the English, never mind trying to figure it out as it was broken down to see what God has to say to us through his word tonight. But we take the confidence that it is his word. And so let's take a moment and come to him asking for his help as he leads us. Let's pray. Father God, we come recognizing that parts of your word are difficult for us. They're difficult for us to understand. We are so far removed from the context and the culture in which they were written. But Lord, we have the knowledge and we trust that this message is for us today. So speak to us. Help us to hear your voice so that we will grow as your disciples, trusting in you each step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapters 1 and 2. We've already looked at chapter 1 is the introductions where Paul says who he is and what this gospel is that he proclaims. And it is something so precious to him that in the verses that we read in chapter 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. This is the reason why he is writing. This gospel message that is so powerful, that has changed his life, he wants to share. To share with believers that they will have confidence in it, but to share the message with the whole world so that they too will come to living faith in Jesus Christ. Because the world needs the gospel message. It is because human beings have turned their backs on their creator, who made them in his image, and are already living under his judgment as he gives them over to depraved thinking and behavior. That's what Christoph has taken us through in chapter 1. Chapter 2 thinks of judgment. The moralist, those who judge others according to their own standards, will ultimately face God's judgment. He tells of a few things about what this judgment will be like. And he concludes the chapter by showing how being religious won't save you from God's judgment either. No matter who we are, we will all be judged. I think it's fair to say that in these first two chapters, and indeed the first half of chapter three, without giving it away too much, Paul is painting us a picture of humanity. Let me give you a glimmer of hope. The next time we come back to Romans next week, the picture looks a lot brighter for what is the hope that humanity has. But for one more time tonight, let's think about what is the human condition. Let's think of how we are sinful and fallen. So we look at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3, and I encourage you to have your Bibles open, page 1130, Romans chapter 3, as we look through this passage together. And Paul starts with a question. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? 
Or what value is there in circumcision? And having looked at what Paul has already said in the previous chapters about what it means to be a Jew, what it means about the circumcision, we would expect the answer to come back, nothing at all. There is no value in any of this. But verse 2 tells us something different. It tells us and records to us that there's a great advantage in being a Jew and in being circumcised because these people, the Jews, have been entrusted with the very words or oracles of God. Israel, out of all the nations that there were, they were God's chosen nation, not to be set apart and and special in a way that alienated them from everyone else, but they were the carriers, the hosts of what was God's message, not just to them, but to the whole world. They had been entrusted with this precious message of the gospel that we know throughout all of Scripture. It made me think of the trust that people put in me. Many of you will know that I have lived, worked, and still travel backwards and forwards to Malawi. And on many occasions, I'm asked to carry things with me, whether they be bars of chocolate or magazines or gifts for people living and serving in Malawi. The number one thing that you asked, or keep getting asked to bring out, is money. Bring out hard cash. And normally it's quite a lot of money. It's better in the exchange rate, and you don't have to worry about going through electronic banking. So off I go with this pile of money. And I have to say, it looks quite attractive. I've never seen these amounts of money before in my hand, um, let alone my bank account sometimes. But here I go off traveling from Northern Ireland halfway around the world to Malawi with this wad of money. I've been entrusted to carry it from A to B, to give it to the person who's supposed to receive it or to lodge it in a bank account. And I come back and give a report. But it would be very easy and very tempting for me to say, very sorry, That money got lost along the way. I was sitting in Nairobi airport and someone came along and snatched my bag. And really I've just pocketed the money for myself and spent it on my little holiday to Malawi. Uh, Just to clear my own name, that has never happened, I should say. But people entrusted me with one thing. And I did something completely different out of my own selfish ambition and gain and bring back a false report as to what happened to try and cover up, because most likely I'd get away with it, because I would like to think that that trust that was given me at the start would continue with whatever message or report I brought home. Entrusted with something precious to deliver. This is what Israel had been given, and they failed miserably in the task the Word of God, handed down and inspired. They were entrusted with carrying on this message of proclaiming to the nations the good news that God was bringing salvation for all the world, but instead they kept it to themselves. They didn't want to share it. They thought that this was them. 
They were so privileged to be God's chosen people that no one but a true-born Jew was entitled to this. Because only God had chosen them, they had missed what the purpose was to be carriers entrusted with the message. The messengers had failed to carry out the task that they had been given. This is the story of Israel. This is the reality of Israel. But Paul quickly moves on as to how this looks. From the outside looking in, what does God look like? As these people entrusted with the word and oracles of God have gone about centuries of living, proclaiming to be God's people, well, what is the view from outside? What is the view of the people around the world as to how God looks as presented by his people? The Jews portrayed God as a cruel and exclusive God rather than a God who was loving and all-embracing. They were the ones who excluded everyone else. They were the ones who took what was God's pure law and added to it the extra mile to make sure that everyone was kept safe and well within the law. But the truth is they, they missed completely what the law was all about, and Paul will reveal that to us towards the end of this passage. But the question has to come, because of their failure to carry the message, does this nullify God's faithfulness? Verse 3 asks the question, Paul comes back, not at all. And in case you're thinking that this is a very strange way of Paul to write, this is a diatribe. This is something that was written in these days. It was something in philosophy, an argument, a letter that you would write as if you were arguing with someone. So Paul comes back straight with the answer saying, not at all. And in the original language, it is a strong not at all. The English doesn't convey it. Certainly not. You cannot... The strength of this is, is hard to comprehend, but he's saying no, not at all, because God is truth. From the foundation of the world, God has been revealing who he is and bringing about his promises, fulfilled them in every way. There has been nothing that has caught him off guard, even the unfaithfulness of the Jews in being entrusted with the message for the full truth of his message will be heard by every people, from every tribe and every language and every nation, as Revelation 5 verse 9 gives us that wonderful picture. God was never caught off guard. His plan of salvation, that wonderful message that he entrusted, would always be fulfilled. To understand this argument of the unfaithfulness of the people affecting the testimony of God and the next few verses that we're going to look at, we should jump to verse 8, which is uh, coming to the end of the, the natural break in the Bible in front of you. Verse 8 tells us that the Christians are being talked about. It's, uh, Paul says, why not say, and then he lets us into this little bit of information, as we are being so slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say. There are people who are out there bringing charges against uh, the Christians, they're saying wrong things. They're making things up. The charge we learn is that they have come to believe that they have free reign to do whatever they want. And they can justify it because it all makes God look good. This is what the charge against the Christian church is, as Paul is writing. 
that they're doing this and this with no regard to the law, no regard to the ways of, of God. And they say that it's all in his name because it makes him, that is God, look good. It makes him all the more righteous. Whenever we stop and think about it, the essence of what we read in verses 5 to 7, there is a truth in there. Because we know and we realize and see in the world that the greater the debt, the greater the act of forgiveness. In other words, the more we sin, the more we show the mercy and grace of God. And throughout the history of the world, we have seen great acts of forgiveness. In the case of Gordon Wilson, whose daughter Mary was killed in the Enniskillen bombing that very night, that Sunday evening, he was straight in front of a television camera with BBC saying how much he forgave the people who had killed his daughter. And we looked at that and we thought, that is a great act of forgiveness. Look at the greatness in this one action. But that one great act of forgiveness didn't make what happened right. Nothing can ever justify wrong and sin. So our sin is never right. By sinning more, yes, we show the mercy and grace of God, but God hates sin. In John 8, 34, Jesus is talking to a group of Jews, believing Jews, people who have trusted in him as, as the Son of God and, and the Savior of the world. And he's talking to them about being set free. This new faith in Jesus sets them free. And they come back and say to Jesus, well, how can we be free when we have never been slaves? Verse 34 of chapter 8 of John, Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Being a slave to sin means we are not God's. We're not free to have a relationship with him. So there is no way we can justify sinning. There is no way we can justify it so that it makes God look good because God hates sin. And if we are his people, we will desire to do what is right to do what he wants us to do and live in relationship with him. In these first eight verses, we have thought that our unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness and that greater sinning is never right. And we would be very quick and could be very quick to say that we have free pardon, that we can do whatever we want and God's way will still come through, that God's grace is greater than any act we carry out. But that's not the way of God's people. That is not the way that God has set for us. God hates sin. God desires of us a relationship that will want us to reveal who he is as we are in communion and relationship and fellowship with him. Not to go the way of the evil one and do as much sin as we can so that God looks good. God desires us to be his people, people of truth, of integrity, of honesty, so that he can use us as his vessels to show to this world 
and reveal to this world what he is like. Even though the Jews were unfaithful in many ways, God still found the way to be true to his promises. Jesus, as Israel's representative, has offered the faithful obedience which Israel should have offered but did not. The Messiah is the messenger who finally delivers the message. Thinking of this, I come with you thinking of two reflections. Firstly, we have been entrusted with a message that needs to be shared. This is what we call covenant. We know that God made a covenant with Abraham, and this is what brought about the people, the children of Israel, the Jews, being entrusted with the message to bring it to the nations. God would make them his people for that purpose of revealing to the world who he is. And in Jesus Christ, we have the new covenant where the covenant is extended not just to that little group of Jewish people, but to everyone in all of this world, so that we would share the gospel that we have been entrusted with. So how do we do that? What does it look like tomorrow morning? Christoph has already pointed you to the parish newsletters. There are still blank spaces on the list to be signed up to go around different streets and deliver these. And maybe you are signed up and you have a pile yet to lift. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you like to get your little list and your little envelope of newsletters and all you do is just throw them in through the door as quickly as you can and run away so that people don't stop you because when they stop you, you might have to say something. If we have been entrusted with a message, can we take our little newsletters Can we share the activities that we're running and trust in God to do his work, his saving work, that through whatever ministry we offer, he will save people for his glory? Or perhaps on a more personal level, we can lift a little postcard, a little Christianity explored postcard. Invite a neighbor, a colleague, Bring them along whenever the course is running. Join them. Go with them. And discover the greatness of God as is explained through this course that we're offering in November. We have a message that we cannot keep to ourselves. It is a message that needs to go beyond these walls. It's a message that needs to go beyond our homes. It is a message that needs to go into our community. The second thing that as I was looking at these verses, I reflected on the fact that all of God's promises will be fulfilled. And with that comes a hope. And it also comes something that we feel uncomfortable with. Because God has promised judgment. God has promised that sin must be punished. He has promised that the judge will rule. And whether whether we are found guilty or not, we will receive what we are due. If we are guilty, 
as the judge finds us in sin for not having received Jesus Christ. We will be punished eternally for that. And if we are found guilty for having sin but trusting in Jesus Christ, the punishment will be put on him and we will go to a hope in eternity of being in his presence. God has promised much and it will be fulfilled. We have the testimony and witness of that in his word. We can see it in history. And his day will come to fulfill the salvation plan when he will come to judge the living and the dead. The first eight verses of chapter 3 leave us with those two thoughts. We have a message that we need to share, and God will fulfill all his promises. But let's move on and look at verses 9 to 20. And these verses address the issue of righteousness. And once again, Paul addresses the human condition. Verses 10 to 18 say, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In quoting the Old Testament, Paul sums up the human condition, and it isn't a pretty picture. In these verses, we see three things. Firstly, the ungodliness of sin. These quotes from the Old Testament start and finish with people not seeking God. People do not care about the glory of God and giving their lives to him. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no recognition that God is the judge. So from these verses we realize the ungodliness of sin. Secondly, we see the pervasiveness of sin. Sin affects every part of our bodies, bodies that were made for the glory of God. This passage mentions throats, tongues, lips, mouths, feet, all instruments given to us that we can bring glory to God. But yet they are marked. Sin affects every part of our bodies. And thirdly, the universality of sin. Sin affects everyone. No matter their status in society, education, or wealth, sin is universal. Every human being is affected by it because each one is born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Verse 19 Paul addresses the law again. Paul has already stated that the Gentiles are guilty before God. Now Israel joins the rest of the world in the dock. In Paul's day, if you were in trial and had nothing to say in your defense, you would put your hand up over your mouth as a sign, a sign that there was nothing more to come from you. There was nothing more you could say. 
verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Paul is stating in this verse that everyone is left without any defense. The whole world is guilty and must face the judgment of God. Every one facing the judgment of God. We think about it, it's all rather depressing. There doesn't seem to be much hope. And unfortunately, I have to stop at verse 20. But allow me to be the BBC or ITV for a moment and give you a quick 15-second glimpse of what's coming up in the next episode. From verse 21, Paul shares the news that there is a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The news for humankind is that Jesus is the one who takes the punishment instead of us. Next week, we will delve into the rest of chapter 3 and receive the hope that God offers us. But tonight, we do pause. We think of our human condition. Throughout the history of Israel, the law was in place so that we would become conscious of sin. But the law never saved, and the law never saves. Paul's point must not be missed. Anyone who imagines that they can stand before God and appeal to works of the law as a reason for final justification, that is, for a favorable verdict at the last judgment, is, in the words of Tom Wright, barking up the wrong tree. If we think that we can follow a law and that in some way that gains us extra favor with God when it comes to that day of judgment, we are truly barking up the wrong tree. I will be honest, and I will say that as I have reflected on these verses over this past week, and this uh, presentation and sermon that I offer you tonight has taken many shapes and turns along this week, but I have had to look at my own life, and I have had to ask that question, is there anything within me, any little glimpse of law-following that I need to sort out. And I'm ashamed to say that I came back and said, yes, there is. I don't believe in a, in a conscious way, but in a way that still affects how I do things. I think habits are good and, and habits help us, but the habit of spending time with God because I think that it'll do me good in His eyes rather than doing it because I want to strengthen and deepen my relationship so it becomes a chore and a duty rather than a living engagement with Him. Or jumping at every opportunity to serve Him without regard for the rest of my life and, and those I'm responsible to, thinking that it will earn me brownie points. I'm doing my bit for God, so therefore I must be good. If we inspect our own lives, if we look and see how we live, 
and, and really get a glimpse of how we understand God. Are we following, even so slightly, a little bit of works, thinking that it will earn us something when really it doesn't? Nothing. Nothing but Jesus Christ. The righteousness that comes through him that the rest of chapter 3 will speak about. Nothing but that will get us to God. No works, no law, no regulations, but only trusting completely in Jesus Christ. Paul very clearly in these first chapters of Romans tells us our condition. And it doesn't look good. But we are on the verge of looking at something greater than the human condition, and that is God's righteousness. We trust in that as we desire to move forward with him taking his message, his word that he's entrusted to us and living completely for him in a relationship with him without trying to earn our way into eternity. Let's pray.